Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, our pastor, David Lunsford, is continuing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of John. Your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Did you hear about the government office a couple of weeks ago? I think it was in Minnesota, where a certain secretary was told to remove her Easter display because Easter is clearly a Christian holiday and some people of other religions might be offended. Hear about that? So she took her Easter bunny and her Easter eggs home. I'm not making it up. I can hardly imagine that anyone who has any understanding of Christianity would say that the Easter Bunny is a Christian symbol of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if there's that much confusion about the Easter Bunny, then we shouldn't be surprised at the confusion regarding the person who rose from the dead on the first resurrection day nearly 2,000 years ago. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised when an author writes a book which purports to tell the story of Jesus as a man who married Mary Magdalene and had children and the descendants are still alive today. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised in all of this confusion that no one seems to open the book where the man told us himself who he was. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John by coming to John chapter 5 and letting Jesus just tell him, uh, just, uh, tell him uh, himself who he claims to be. We're going to read the story that we considered last week, the first half of this chapter, because we need to get the flow of, of what Jesus says. We need to see why he says what he does, the part that we want to consider today. John 5 verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another one steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He said to them, He who made me well said, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. 
The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. We need to recap this just briefly before we go on because it gives great meaning to what Jesus is about to say. The leaders of the, of the Jewish people, that, who we're going to refer to today as the Pharisees, that would have been the name of a group of them, the Pharisees had made up their own rules based on God's Old Testament truth, which said you should take the seventh day off. You should have a Sabbath day, a rest day. It was not particularly a day of worship. It was a day of rest. And God said if they took that day of rest, it would honor him. It would make his people distinct from all the other people around them. Now the Pharisees came along and said, well, let's, let's decide what it means to work. And they had all kinds of lists of rules to help people follow this day of rest rule. And one of them was you can't carry anything. And this man, of course, picked up his bed, which would have been like a little mat, like a little wicker mat that he wrote that he just kept him off the dirt. He would have rolled that up and tucked it under his arm and walked. And we noted very carefully throughout those, those verses that Jesus did this on purpose. He didn't heal all the people that were there, even though he could have. He healed one man, and even when he healed him, he didn't say, now go to the temple and show yourself for the ritual approval that should have come. This man did do that. You see that a little bit later. But what he said was, take up your bed and walk, because he knew it was going to make the Pharisees mad. you got to love a guy who stirs the pot once in a while. But the reason he was stirring the pot was because their concept of religion was theirs, not God's. And he wanted them to see that. And so when he did this miracle, all they could see was, this guy's carrying his mat. They didn't care that he was cured. They never come to him and say, who cured you? They said, who told you to carry that? And their response to Jesus, their, their attitudinal response was, Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, what did he say in the return? This is the passage we want to consider today. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working till now and I have been working. Now look what happens. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also he said that God was his father making himself equal with God. Man, if they were mad before, they are furious now. And Jesus answered them, verse 19, and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son, and he shows him all the things that he himself does. And he will show greater works than these that you may marvel for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Jesus answered his critics by saying, I am equal to God. In other words, they questioned, they said, you can't do this. And he said, look, I'm God. 
And so I think I am doing what is right. I should know what is right if I am God. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, how did he communicate this to them? Because if you look at verse 17 and you separate it from verse 18, you might tend to say, well, he called God his father. Every, you know, I call God my father. Why did they get so worked up that in verse 18, they're saying, we're going to kill you because you have just said you're equal to God. Well, the reason that they got so upset was he used a word that we don't quite grasp because this comes from the Greek language. He said, God is my own father. He didn't say God is our father in that generic sense in which God is the creator of all people, or even in the generic sense of which God is the father of the nation of Israel, which they were a part. He said, God is my father. He claimed that he was made out of the same stuff as God. We need to reconsider a doctrine that we've been considering throughout this Gospel of John. And sometimes we call it the Trinity. Sometimes in, in recent years, people have started to call it the triunity of God because maybe that's a little clearer in English. I'm not sure. Jesus here is clearly done something that only God can do. He said, get up and walk to a man who had been lame for 38 years. Human beings can't do that. Human beings claim to be able to do that, but they can't. Even the doctor can't do that. Sometimes he can't do anything for you. Jesus came along and did something that only God could do, which demonstrated that his statement was going to be true, and he'd done so many other things as well. But what he is trying to help us understand, and what he was trying to help these Jewish folks understand is, there are three persons in the Godhead. They, they share one nature as God, but they are three in their roles. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these are all three declared throughout the Scripture to possess the characteristics that only God has. They possess what, what we would call the divine nature now there's two, there's the word divine and there's one other word I'd like you to learn today. This is your theology lesson today. The word deity, uh, the, or we use the phrase the deity of Christ. The word deity could, could be a reference to anything someone calls a God. We know there's only one true God, but sometimes people will talk about another deity or another God. The word deity means to possess the nature of God. The synonym for that is the word divine. The, the, the word divine or the word deity means the same thing. And so we use the phrase, the deity of Christ, or the God nature of Christ. Jesus Christ was the second person of this group of three that are united. You see that they share, the diagram shows us that they share a nature. They are all equal in their godness. They all can create. They all can bring life, as we'll look here in a minute. They all possess knowledge. Throughout the scripture, we learn these things. And Jesus was declaring something to these folks that they did not know. This was one of the great misunderstandings of the Jewish people that made them hate Jesus. Even though if they'd have gone back to Genesis chapter 1, they would have heard God say this when he got ready to make mankind. He said, let us make man in our image. And so God clearly intimated in the first chapter of the Bible that, that he existed in three persons. And so Jesus here is trying to address their, 
their hatred of him uh, by helping them to understand who he is. He says, I am equal to God. Now, I, I want to try and, and describe this as clearly as I can by saying this. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There is one God who exists in three persons. And right away you're going, oh, Pastor Dave, you're really stretching my mind here. I mean, I just got a full stomach from that wonderful breakfast that Kathy and her daughter Beth cooked. And I'm a little warm in the room and I'm struggling to think. And now you're telling me one God who exists in three persons. Let me just say this. The Bible declares that to be so. It does not explain how it's possible. And I would add this. If you could understand God the way you understand something about your physical world in some intimate knowledge, how great would God be? I don't think he'd be very great. And that's why us human beings always struggle a little bit. God has given us a tremendous amount of information about himself, and today we're learning something about Jesus. But we will never fully grasp Jesus and God and, how, and the Holy Spirit and how they interrelate and yet how they act distinctly in the world because we are the creature, we are the creation, we are not the creator. Jesus very clearly said to these people, as to my nature, as to my essence, I am equal with God. And he goes on to expound this, if you will. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. He says, I'm equal with God in my authority. This is the broad term that I would like to use as we look at some of these particular distinctives. First of all, I'm equal with God in authority because our works are the same. He said, I see what God is doing and I do the same thing. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, Jesus must have been a, an inferior being to God the Father. That's not the case. What we find in Philippians chapter 2 is this. Jesus willingly humbled himself and placed himself under the authority of the Father to accomplish the mission of salvation by taking on a human body. And so as the Son of Man, as the second person of the Trinity with a human body, a person on a mission to die and shed blood and pay for our sins, he submitted to God's plans. And so he said, I look and see what God is doing and I do the same thing. We are on the same page. Our works are the same. Secondly, our hearts are united. Look at verse 20. This is one of those verses that we don't see too many of in the scripture. For the Father loves the Son. And you know what word he uses for love there? It's not the word agape, which is a common word in the New Testament that means an act of the will. He uses the word for brotherly love or family love, which tends toward the idea of affection. God the Father loves God the Son, and so he shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show greater things than these that you may marvel. He says, our hearts are united. We are one in this thing. There is no, there's no argument between us. Now we go all the way till right before Jesus died in the Garden of Gethsemane and we see him saying, Father, if there's any way, please let this cup pass from me. He was saying, oh, this is going to be a terrible thing and I don't want to go through it. I will if it's the only way to accomplish the salvation of mankind. 
So there was no separation, there was no division, there was no argument. It was him expressing his heart. But he says, our hearts are united. We are in this together. We see things the same way, we think the same way, we do the same things. Secondly, I'm equal with God, or thirdly, I'm equal with God in authority because our impact is the same. Look at verse 20. The father loves the son and shows him all the things that he himself does, and he will show the son greater works than these that you may marvel. When God did those tremendous miracles in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people, the people of God saw these things. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the walls of Jericho fall, all these great things. And here, Jesus said, our impact is the same. He gives me these works to do, and I do them. And the result is you marvel. You, you look at it, and you go, wow, what a miracle. Our impact is the same. Number four, I have, I'm equal with God in authority because our power is equal. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you can right away think of a guy named Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. Now, don't you think when that happened that the Jewish authorities would have looked at Jesus and said, you know, can't do anything better than that. Might as well give up this fight. But they didn't. We're going to look at why in just a minute here. But his power is equal to God's power. And that's why he has the authority of God. Number five, because our judgments are one. Look at verse 22. The father judges no one, but he's committed all the judgment to the son. Let me put that in modern management terms. God the father has delegated the judgment of the world to Jesus Christ. And being a person who has to delegate once in a while, I know that that's tough to delegate when you're not quite sure if the person who takes the job will do it exactly like you want. And that's my human weakness. But you know what? God knew that Jesus would do exactly what he would do. So there's no, there's no, there's no argument between them. So he gives it to him. God would not give the judgment of the world to anybody other than a divine person who would be able to accurately judge. John MacArthur said this about this point. Because their wills are in perfect harmony, all judgment can be given to Christ in the assurance that his judgment will in fact be the very same judgment as the Father's. The last reason that Jesus had equal authority with God is because their positions are equal. Look at verse 23. He says, all of these things are true with the result that everyone in the world should honor the Son, and I believe we could give a word that we recognize more readily there as worship. All should worship the Son as they worship the Father. He who does not worship the Son does not worship the Father who sent him. Jesus said, we are equal, and if you do not honor me, you are not honoring him. I found a couple of very well-spoken quotes about this. So men today talk of God, the Father, or the great architect of the universe, or whatever other name they use, and they set aside the Son, and thus rob God of all true honor. Warren Wiersbe said this, the religious people who say that they worship God but who deny the deity of Christ 
have neither the Father nor the Son. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot know the Father, worship the Father, or serve the Father. And so this theology lesson starts to become practical. Do you claim to believe in God? Do you claim to worship God? If you do, you should be worshiping Jesus. You should be believing in Jesus. You should be honoring Jesus. Jesus very clearly tells us there, if you don't honor me, you do not honor the Father who sent me. Now Jesus clearly claimed here to be equal in nature and authority with God. And how was he received? Let's read verse 18 again. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And there are many verses like this in the Gospels that we could read many times when they they were just so angry, they went away and plotted, how can we kill him? How can we kill him? See, their understanding of Jesus was absolutely clear. Do you you realize that? They knew exactly who he claimed to be. There was no problem with understanding. And I think that's the truth today with a great many people. Surely some people may not have understood some of the finer points of, of the doctrine of the triunity of God as we have just talked about them, but the understanding about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God is pretty clear, like it was with those folks. But what was the problem Why didn't they accept Christ? Because their understanding was prejudiced. Their understanding was prejudiced. Now, I'm not talking about racial prejudice, because he was a Jewish person and they were Jewish people. So I'm not not talking about racial prejudice. I'm talking about the prejudice of the will, the prejudice of the heart. They hated what he claimed But no one proved him wrong. No one, no one, none of these men came and got out the Old Testament, which they had in its entirety available to them, and said, hey, buddy, let's look at your life and let's look what this says about the Messiah to come. And let's find out where you have you have missed the boat here. Nobody, nobody did that. Nobody tried to do that. Uh, One of the things that I just continually marvel at in the Christmas story is when these men travel seven or eight hundred miles from the east and they come to the king and they say, we have been following the star of him who has been born, the king of the Jews. We come to see him. Can you tell us where he's been born? Because the star is right here and we don't know where to go now. And so the king calls the, the Jewish experts in the Old Testament. And what did they say? They came and said, Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And they quote the scripture. And, they, and, and, and these wise men from the east, the Gentiles, not even Jewish folks, they said, thank you very much. And off they went to Bethlehem. What did the Jewish experts in the Old Testament do? They went back to bed. They did. Wouldn't you think, let's go find out. Let's go see, you know, there have been a lot of imposters, and there were. There were imposters within the last couple hundred years before Jesus came to the earth. There were people claiming to be the Messiah. Wouldn't you think you'd go, let's check it out. Even today, there is a a man who lived and now is dead, uh, Menachem Schneerson. He was a rabbi in, in Brooklyn, New York, and many Jews around the world think he's going to be the Messiah. 
They think he's going to rise from the dead and be a Messiah. Some of them even carry pagers that are set, that's off of a certain organization that's part of this, and when he rises from the dead, they're going to get paged. Serious, I'm not making this up. But here's the thing that kind of galls me. Nobody has opened up the Old Testament and looked at Rabbi Schneerson's life and said, let's see, does he match what is supposed to be true of the Messiah? Because it wouldn't. It wouldn't match. He's born in Brooklyn, not Bethlehem. <laughs> and I'm not the first guy to point that out. The first guy to point it out where I read the article was a, was a fine Jewish Christian who's saying, what in the world? All I'm asking for is a little bit of honest, intellectual research. I'm not asking for a blind leap of faith. I'm saying, have you checked it out? Because these guys didn't. They didn't sit down with Jesus and say, well, now, Jesus, let's talk about this Sabbath thing. You know, here's what we understand. And Jesus would say, yeah, but here's what God says. And they, you know, and they would come to a knowledge of the truth. No, they had a prejudicial understanding. They just said, this is what we believe. We don't care what you say. Look what Paul says. Paul, being a Jewish person, and I hope you understand, especially if you're new today, I am not here to bash the Jews. Because I, still, I believe they are still God's chosen people and they still have a wonderful place in his future. But I'm talking about them today because they, this is the interchange that went on. Jesus was a Jewish man. These were Jewish people. And so it was, it was not the non-Jewish people trying to kill Jesus and get rid of him. It, the non-Jewish people, like we just saw in chapter 4 of John, embraced him. And they were the people without the knowledge of the Old Testament. The very people who should have known, look what Paul says about them. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's genuine righteousness and seeking to establish their own kind of righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. There's the rub right there, folks. The only way you can have the righteousness of God is by submitting to it. And the rub is we don't want to submit. It is a problem of our will or of our heart. It's not a problem of our head. They never seem to ask whether what Jesus said was true. It contradicted their cherished ideas and that was enough. It had to be wrong. Are you an honest student of Christ? Or is your mind made up and you don't want to be bothered with the facts? We have a book on the shelf. I don't know if we have any. I, I took the last one and gave it to somebody. Maybe there might only be one left. Of a man who was not a Christian, a man named Lee Strobel. He was a lawyer and a journalist. And he said, I am going to prove this Christianity thing false once and for all. And so he set about reading the scripture and investigating all of the historical and archaeological facts and, and all the things that go with that. And you know what happened to him? He couldn't prove it wrong. He became a believer in Jesus Christ. You know why? Because he was an honest skeptic, not a prejudiced skeptic. How does Jesus respond? This, this is really the corker here, folks, though. This really amazes me. Look at verse 24. 
Jesus has been responding, you know, he knows they want to kill him, and so he's defining his divinity. He's saying, I am equal with God. And then what does he say in verse 24? Most assuredly, in your King James it says, verily, verily, or truly, truly would be a a way to, to translate that. It's a way to say, this is really, really true. This is really important. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and he shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Jesus, right here, right now, extends an invitation to his critics. And the first thing we have to understand that this invitation is gracious. What do you do? What do you want to do when someone insults you? Do you think pretty thoughts or ugly thoughts? What do you want to say when someone you have tried to help is acting like you don't exist? What do you want to do when the folk you you have been patient with are stabbing you in the back? If you're Jesus, you offer them eternal life. Isn't that the most incredible thing? These people are literally trying to kill him. And he says, if you believe, you can have everlasting life. If that is not grace and graciousness, I don't know what is. The word grace in the New Testament means an unmerited favor, unearned favor. Uh, Many of you have jobs where you go to work and the end of the week or the two weeks or the month they give you a check you have earned that and more they just don't appreciate your work enough or they pay you more tell them what you deserve i'm sure they'll write you a check to make it up <clears throat> but many of you are living on social security getting unearned income no that's not true uh, You've earned that also. Can you imagine going to some place and saying, you know, I'd, I'd like to get a paycheck here. They say, well, what, what job do you want? Oh, no, you don't understand. I don't want to work. I just want to get a paycheck. <laughs> now, friends, as silly as that is, we know that'll never happen on earth, but it happens every time somebody comes to God and says, I am not capable of earning my salvation. I am not capable of doing enough good deeds to get to heaven. God, would you please give me the gift of eternal life? And when you do that, you know what he does? He gives you that big old blank check of eternal life, and he says, there, I will graciously give you salvation. These people didn't deserve to be saved. They're trying to kill Jesus. And yet he says, if you believe, you can have everlasting life. Listen to how gracious God has been in giving us salvation. For when we were still without strength, in other words, there's no ability to do good deeds to earn salvation. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God was so gracious in giving us salvation. He looked down and he said, look at that poor human race. If I don't do something, they're all going to go to hell. I'm going to have to judge them for their sin. And so he sent Jesus Christ to, to bear the penalty of our sin. And God, who we saw earlier, loves the Son. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, he poured out his wrath on Jesus and poured it out to, to, to where finally Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus hung there for those three dark hours and just took the punishment of God. And he could take it, he could handle it, if you will, because he was divine, because he was the Son of God in human flesh. And when those hours were over, God said, that's it, I got nothing left. I've punished you for every sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed. And the gracious thing is, is that Jesus went through that, God went through that, while we were still in our sin. You know what that means? It doesn't, mean who, it doesn't matter who you are, or who you were, or what you've done, or how many times you've, you've been arrested or done things you should have been arrested for. It doesn't matter. These people wanted to kill Jesus himself. None of us have ever done that. And God offered them the gift of eternal life like he offers it to us today. Jesus' invitation is gracious. Secondly, Jesus' invitation is to eternal life. Often when we think of eternal life, we think of heaven in the future. You know, I'm going to die someday, and, and you know, I'll get right with God before I die. But when we think that way, we're missing a big part of the concept of eternal life. Um, most assuredly, he who hears my word and believes, shall I will, he has... At that moment that he believes, he has eternal life. Why do people who are alive need eternal life? One of the verses that I encountered early as I began to really focus on the ministry and believe that God was calling me toward this was John 10.10 where Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. If you stop and think about it, you think, well, we're, we're already alive. What life do we need? Well, we need what he calls here everlasting life. In other places, he calls it new life or a recreated life. Why do we need eternal life? Because we are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1, and you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. What's it mean to be dead in sin? Because you all look like good people. You all look like decent people. So, I, you know, you don't look like great big bad sinners that are dead in sin. But you know what it means to be dead in sin? It simply means this. Before you come to know Christ as your Savior, sin rules your life. What's it mean for sin to rule your life? The rule of sin is why you do nice things for selfish reasons. So you look around and you see people doing really nice things and you say, these people aren't all dead in sin. Well, the deadness is inside. Because what they're hoping is that when you see that nice thing, you'll come along, pat them on the back and tell them what a great person they are. And God calls that the sin of pride. The rule of sin is why you cannot conquer your tongue or your mind or whatever it is that's out of control in your life. 
The rule of sin is why you get angry so easily. The rule of sin is why all the stuff of the world still doesn't satisfy your soul. That's the biggest evidence of the rule of sin in life that there could possibly be. I found an interesting quote from a guy you might know named Jim Carrey. He's an actor. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could see it's not the answer. (laughs) Now, I've got a feeling he's speaking from experience because he is rich and famous. I don't know if he's done everything he ever wanted to do. I know he makes, you know, 20 million plus for a movie. How many movies do you need to make to be rich? And what he's telling me is that it almost sounds, you know, that, that's a one-verse summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon, he, he says, I went out to test my heart, to test it with, 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 uh, with fun, to test it with liquor, to test it with women, to test it with knowledge, and everything was a vanity or useless or empty. And I just want to invite you today, I I don't want to chastise you, I want to invite you and say, you know what, the quality of everlasting life that you can most notice when you accept Christ is that down in your heart, there's a fullness, not an emptiness. Not an emptiness that constantly clings, that constantly goes after more money or more relationships or more prestige or whatever it is. We need eternal life right now. Even those of us who know Christ as Savior can come to times in our life when we're pursuing something other than God. And so some of that emptiness creeps back in because nothing, nothing will satisfy your soul like everlasting life from the person of Christ. There's a second reason that we need eternal life. Because there will be a judgment day. Look at verse 24 again. He who believes in me, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me, has everlasting life, and he shall not come into judgment, but he's passed from death into life. Do you know what that means? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will never come to a day where you have to stand before God and defend your life and and defend your right to inhabit heaven. That day is done. When you accept Christ as your Savior, when you, when you believe in Him, as He says here, all your sin is taken away and your place is built in heaven and it's ready for you. And there's not going to be any, any judgment of damnation or any evaluation to see if you're good enough to get into heaven. That just goes away. You can confidently face the future. Not happy that you're going to die, but joyful that when your death day comes, it's just going to be one split second of closing your eyes here and waking up in the presence of God. There will be a judgment day. John 6.40 states the desire of God. And I think this is so important because it's a very positive desire. This is the will of him who sent me. In other words, God the Father sent Jesus. This is his will, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. God did not send Jesus to earth so someday he can send people to hell and say, see, I told you so. That will not make God happy. What will make him happy is if we we get to heaven and he says, see, I told you so. That will make him happy. That makes him happy now. Jesus' invitation, lastly, is clear. It's very clear. Look at verse 24. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. This is written in such a way that we need to believe in God and we need to believe in Jesus as well. And there are many verses that talk about having faith in Christ. Most famous of all is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. (coughs) For Jesus to speak as he did that day was a very courageous thing. He was saying things which he knew the religious people of his day would regard as blasphemy and for which they would oppose him relentlessly. But they were true and they were important, so he said them. The man who listened to words like this had only two alternatives. The listener must either accept Jesus as the Son of God or he must hate him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy him. That's a quote from uh, Mr. Morris and his commentary. I just want to bring my sermon to a conclusion this way by coming back to the title and saying Jesus clearly declared who he was. Do you know that there have been people down through the years who have said, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. And they try to kind of push him off the scene by saying he didn't claim this. His followers built him up. I'm just here to say that by his own words, he has made himself out to be the Lord of the universe. Now, there are two other possibilities that I put in this title, which I have borrowed from some author who was much more creative than I, and uh, I don't know his name, but this phrase has been around for a while. You could decide today, Jesus was crazy. He was out of his mind. Okay, that's a logical choice. I mean, that's a fair logical choice. I don't think it's right, but it's a fair choice. But let's look at the idea that he was a liar. Was he a liar? There's only one way you can know for certain that he's a liar, and that is to do the research and really check into it and see out, was he lying? Was he a historical figure? Is there a grave with his name on it in Jerusalem? No. There's two of them. They're both empty. There's no full ones. Was he a liar? Because here's the real rub. A lot of people say, you know, Jesus was a good guy. He's a good guy. But he's a little confused about that God thing. We should follow his example of self-sacrifice and loving and so on. Folks, I want to tell you, if Jesus lied to us about being God, he's not a good guy and you should not follow his example. But if he was a good guy, then he told the truth and he is the Lord of the universe and we are left with a very clear choice today to embrace him believe in him, or to fight him the way the Pharisees did. I challenge you today to look at the facts and to embrace Jesus as the Lord of the universe. And if you've already believed in him as your Savior, I would challenge you today and encourage you today to rejoice in the fact that he is God and he has filled your life. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am so glad that you brought me to a knowledge of the truth through no design of my own, but through your design and the design of my parents and others who who said, this guy needs to know Christ. And, And you brought me to a knowledge of the truth so I could believe. And I just thank you for that. 
I thank you that you have given me eternal life. You have made my life purposeful, meaningful. I thank you for that. Father, I want that for everybody in this room. I want everybody to know your joy, your meaning, your purpose, your confidence about heaven in the future. Father, bring that to us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.